Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. Today's guest is Ash Beckham. Ash is a bold and dynamic presenter who speaks about empathy, respect, and the power of having real conversations. Now, you may know her from uh, her powerful TEDx talks, uh, Coming Out of Your Closet and Owning Your Duality. Coming Out of Your Closet is just a fantastic talk, and I'm going to link that uh, here. Uh, But she also gained a little bit of fame because of those dynamic speaking skills uh, with another speech she gave at Boulder Ignite titled, I'm So Gay. Uh, As you can tell, uh, she is a leadership diversity educator and has a great ability to connect with folks through real meaningful conversations infused with just the right level of humor in my opinion um ash has delivered keynotes and workshops for universities organizations and corporations across the country including bank of america target Procter & Gamble, GameStop, Vanguard, the U.S. Forest Service, and the FBI. And one of the things we're going to be talking about here for the most part is going to be her first book, Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. So with that, join me in welcoming Ash Beckham to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Ash, thanks for being with us. Oh, so excited to be here, Earl. Thank you so much. Oh, I am super excited to have this conversation. Like a lot of what you talk about, uh, it means a lot to me. I know it means a lot to a lot of folks. And But before we get into those things, I want to start you off where I start all of my guests. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? 
To me, I mean, I think it's so multifaceted, but I think when you distill it down, it, it, it really means a willingness to learn and grow, right? That that it's this continual journey that, that we take as leaders. And the most responsible thing that you can do is to be open to change and open to continuously Im- improving your leadership style, uh, the way you interact with people, the way you lead kind of up close and personal, the way you lead from afar, just, just that willingness that... And I guess um, it sometimes it's reluctant in the beginning, but the acknowledgement that there kind of is no finish line, right? That we it's not ever something we fully achieve. It's something that we're always we're always chasing, and and that's kind of the point. Yeah, no, I like that last piece. Uh, I've got a buddy, Jim Bouchard, and he said he stole it from somebody. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Um, but he said he heard somebody describe uh, perfection. He said perfection is not a destination. It's an it's a never ending journey. And Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of what you're talking about there, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That we, you know, we can't think that the leader we are today, things happen to us, right? And and we don't operate in a vacuum. We can't lead in a vacuum. We lead people. So the more we get to know people, the more things that happen, you know, positive successes, challenges that we face, they change us as leaders. And I think the way that we adapt says as much as about our leadership style as anything. If, if you're the same leader today that you were, you know, a week, a month, a year ago, you're really missing the opportunity to learn from, from living as a leader. Mm. No, that is... There is so much truth in that. And so kind of on that point, uh, some of the things that, that I've looked up, and, and you've got a lot of great stuff out there uh, on YouTube, and I'll link to, to some of the stuff here because you, you've given a lot of great talks uh, over the past several years. But uh, I've heard you kind of refer to yourself as an accidental advocate. What, what do you mean by an accidental advocate? Well, I think that there's a lot of people, I mean, people get to advocacy in a bunch of different ways. And, and I think when, when we look at leadership and, and then for me, when I look at advocacy, you know, you, for a long time, I thought there was only one way to do it, right? There was like the kind of this prescribed way that it needed to be done. And and I think that really sells short our individuality and, and the need for us to be the most effective leaders, the most effective advocates um, is is that we make it personalized. You know, we, we play to our strengths and we mute at the very least and ideally improve on our weaknesses but but we can be the leaders that we want to be and and the more genuine and the more authentic it is to us the more effective it is so um i didn't really fit in the um you know kind of soapbox um march with the sign kind of um advocate or activist that just wasn't wasn't how i i live my life most authentically um so then i figured i didn't have a place in the advocacy world but um, kind of through having honest conversations and, and realizing that for me, you know, my ability to, to relate to people and kind of break down these taboo topics into something that was just relatable to everybody um, was was really critical. And, and so then that kind of led me to some advocacy and, and activism that that felt really easy, right? I didn't have a lot of resistance to it because it was, it was authentic and it felt honest. It's the same stories, you know, stories where I'm not necessarily the hero, but stories of human experience that I would tell my buddies in a bar, you know what I mean? Like this, they're the stories of my life and, and the fact that they resonated with people, um, really kind of led me down this path, but it wasn't a, you know, traditional, I guess I didn't, I didn't have my end games or my sights set on, you know, being a keynote speaker or any of those things It just kind of evolved naturally. And, and so for me, that made it feel more comfortable and, and feel more genuine. 
Well, and, and I tell you right there that that last word is is so important. And when I you know go through and I watch the the speaking engagements you have out there, and and I think it's one of the reasons why your your TED talk. Like I was looking uh, between you know the various YouTube versions and then the official TED talk version. I think your talk uh, coming out of your closet has been viewed a little over ten million times, which is just amazing. But I think that is one of the reasons why you are so effective is that genuineness. Like uh, I've doing what I do, I've spoken with and and watched and researched a ton of speakers, and you know there there's some authenticity there. But you you come across. Again, people know that you've lived the things you're talking about, and that is just a fantastic quality to have. And you got a great sense of humor. I got to point that out there. You got a fantastic sense of humor, which I love. I think that's, yeah, I think that's an important part for me. Like, that's just, you know, I feel like humor is my love language. Like, that's just how you you relate to people. And I think it's really disarming. I think the two things um, that I think apply to leadership, it applies to speaking for me, and again, like everybody crafts it in their own way, but to me, it's incredibly disarming to be to find humor where a lot of people don't find humor, um, and to find um, and to have vulnerability. And when somebody comes to you with those two elements, um, I, I think even if you don't agree, even if you don't necessarily see the world the way that they see the world, you're at least going to listen, right? You're at least going to engage because there's some humanity there. And, and to me, those are, those are critical ways to, to really connect. And, and that's what it's about more than anything, right? Like, I don't, I don't have these challenging conversations with somebody about, um, you know, difference of opinion of politics or, you know, social issues or LGBTQ issues or diversity in general. Like, I don't, I don't have those conversations. I think this was kind of the pivot that I, I had was I don't have those conversations with the ulterior motive of changing somebody's mind, right? Like you, you can't go in it with that because then it sets up a dynamic of either you win or you don't. So if you don't change their mind, you know, in this one 15 second or 15 minute interaction, then somehow you failed like that. That doesn't work for me. <laughs> that, that dynamic is it's too absolute. I think it's about, you know, really giving, giving people information. Hey, this is what it's like to be me. These are experiences whether, you know, the, the very first talk I did was an Ignite talk and, and that was about using the word gay in a negative way, like, you know, in a disparaging way. Oh, that is so gay. Right. And, and, and you can get somebody to stop saying that because you tell them to stop saying that and then they just don't say it around you. They don't actually change your behavior. But when you explain to them that when I hear that or if that's directed towards me or I hear that in passing conversation – it, it gives a second class status to gayness and, and, it, and it's, it's disparaging and it's pejorative and it, and it makes me feel unsafe, even though you might be super progressive, you might have gay friends. Like if those are the words that you choose, they affect people. And once I tell you how they affect me, then kind of the burden is off of me. And now, you know, like you don't know what you don't know, but if I can share my experience and tell you how it makes me feel now it's kind of on you to decide if you want to do that in the future. And to me, that's such a better motivator for people changing their behaviors, not because you're not supposed to or it's not politically correct. Like then we get into so many other dynamics. But if if you just know this person that you care about or that you work with or that you know or that maybe as bystander you don't know, your word choice, actions, whatever, fill in the blank, affects them in a certain way, 
then they're empowered to make that change. And to me, that that is is where we get that kind of grassroots societal shift person by person, because then that person becomes the same advocate. Hey, I know this is what you said, but this is kind of how it affects people. You know, here's some different options. I know that probably isn't what you meant. Like it's it's a much more um, cohesive communal way of making that change happen than hey, we don't we don't use that those words in here. You know what I mean? To me, it's it's more. Um, it empowers people to to be the difference that that they want to see, and 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 really lets them know the impact that they have that they might not they might not see otherwise. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And that that talk that you mentioned, it's one of the ones I found, and I loved it because, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee. Um, uh, you know, I was uh, in high school in in the nineties and in, in the late eighties, early nineties. That phrase, you know, that's so gay. That was just, you know, that was something that we just said, right? If it was something we didn't like, and and as you mentioned, you know, uh, if there was a test uh, that the teacher put out, oh, you know, that's so gay. And, and there weren't a lot, at least that I knew of at the time, uh, gay people at my school. And so I never thought to that level, like, you know, when I'm calling this something disparaging, um, maybe I'm, I'm keeping somebody from being who they are because they think they, they I'm reinforcing that negative association. And it wasn't until I left and I, I went to, and I've shared this story on here a few times. It wasn't until I left my hometown and I went to Marine Corps boot camp. Uh, that I, I really started thinking on that level because uh, we were doing a, a field day, which is basically just uh, a thorough cleaning of the barracks. And I was doing what kids from my hometown did when they worked. I was whistling Dixie, you know, and, and I had uh, there was a, a black recruit there and he came up to me and, and basically the conversation you were just talking about. He says, um, so are you racist? Oh, and I, I said, no. Why? He goes, well you know, that song. And, and we have this conversation about what that song means to him. And and like you said, I, I, I had a choice right then and there. Do I just keep doing what I do because it's me deal with it? Or do I respect what he just told me and, and, and show that I actually value him as a fellow Marine, a teammate, somebody that I'm supposed to be able to put my life in his hands and he's supposed to put his life in my hands. But that was a spark for me to get me to think into that next level. And I'll be honest until your, your talk, I never really put, with the, that term that way, but it, it, it cemented that. And, and we do that a lot with, with trying to be funny, trying to maybe in some ways try to show, Hey, this is not a big deal, but we can make it even worse by trying to show it's not a big deal. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that perspective is so amazing. And I think, you know, the vast majority of people when challenged like that, your initial response is to be defensive. Right. You know what I mean? I think like the the survivalist in us, especially in uh, not knowing what the experience is like, but knowing what I mean, it's just like this beautiful dynamic of, of you being torn probably between this kind of like tough version of Marine Corps and your history and, and all the challenges that you're facing going into that. And then also acknowledging like I am learning the traits of what it means to be a Marine and not put myself first. Right. And, and, but I think so many people, especially when you're at a, you know, you're a certain age and you're in a certain environment that your initial, I mean, I think the vast majority of people's initial response would have been, this is me deal with it because we don't know how to deal with that conflict. Right. Like we don't know how to deal with being challenged in a way that, that really challenges us to our core 
And it's our own ignorance and not ignorance in a negative way, just lack of knowledge. Like you didn't know. And then once you knew, now you can decide, is that something I want to do? Do I just never do it again? Do I just not do it around him? Do I have conversations with my friends when I go back home on leave around that? You know, like you are so empowered with the influence that you have that you didn't know you had before that the fact that it was a conversation with someone that you had a prior relationship with where there was trust and um, teamwork and, you know, a, a sense of cohesion with like, that's where those real conversations happen. You could have read that in an article. It wouldn't have had nearly the impact than a real honest conversation. And to me, that that's what I advocate for. And, and that's what I work towards is empowering people to to step into those things and have those conversations. And, and, you know, does, does that guy know that that conversation forever changed the course of how you thought about things? Probably not, but in a way that it did. And he probably had positive feedback from the same experience, right? I'm, that was no, no easy way for, and I'm sure that wasn't easy for him as well. You know, I, I feel like if we can acknowledge each other's kind of the mutual courage that you bring to those situations, then it, it leads us all in a better place. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, you're right. And, you know, looking back on it, I, I hope I hope it was a positive experience for, for him as well, because I could see, you know, I could see him having that conversation with other people and, and, and it not going anywhere near as, as well. Oh, but here's the great thing. <laughs> here's the great thing. Uh, you're right. May, you, people don't know what they don't know. And uh, what I'm going to challenge folks to do right now is go out and pick up a copy of Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader uh, that Ash wrote. And in this book, um, you know, she lays out some really great uh, pillars that I think, you know, are these things are fantastic um, and, and they will help you do just like the title says, live with courage and become an everyday leader. And it's kind of a roadmap to being able to have these types of interactions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so it, um, why, why I started the, or why I wrote the book really was I had met so many people when I was traveling around and ha having conversations and everything from, you know, high school to community colleges to corporate events, like all along the way, people were inspired by stories of leadership and saw it as something that they wanted to attain, right? It was something that was off in the distance. If they just had the the right position at work, or if they just had the right degree, or if they just had managed a budget line that was big enough, right? Like they needed to be in a position to act as a leader. And, and I think that that's so very limiting, right? Like we can be leaders. Everybody listening to this podcast is a leader right now today from exactly where they are. Yes. It might be in their community. It might be in their house. Like, and, and the biggest, the largest challenge was people admitting the fact that they were indeed leaders, right? And, and that it wasn't a position that, you know, it isn't just at work. It isn't something where, you know, you go in and, and you hang your hat and, and you, you know, it's not the Mr. Rogers style, right? Like you put on your leadership <laughs> cardigan and then you go through your work day. And then when you close your laptop, it's not like the, the way that I think of leadership, it, it's a, it's a, personal brand. It's something that we do when we're in the grocery store or when we coach our kids t-ball team or wherever we are, there are these these elements of interacting with humans where we can be leaders. And again, it isn't necessarily like, to me, 
the interaction between you and your fellow Marine was so impactful, but likely there was somebody that overheard that conversation. And neither of you probably know, and whether that was somebody who related to him or related to you, again, like all of these things happen when somebody sees you open the door and let somebody else through or let somebody else go first in the grocery store or take the time to talk to the barista at the coffee shop. Like all of these ways that we interact as humans where we're just engaged and caring and and knowing that one little conversation just really helps um, and, and, and sometimes in, in our day, we just need somebody to, to acknowledge us. I, I think when we see that, that's what leadership looks like to me. You know, it's not that you set the agenda for the meeting that's every other Monday. So, so when I wrote this book, it was everybody from CEOs, cause I think these are equally as important tenants for them to the 10 year old captain of the soccer team. Uh, the idea is that there are these tools that we can have as leaders. And, you know, I think they say when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you have all of these other tools, you approach a situation and you can decide what is the combination of tools that I have? Is it empathy with a little bit of courage and a whole lot of grace? Is it um, responsibility? Is it humility with patience? And then, you know, authenticity sprinkled without like you can approach any situation and you can select the the proper tools from the tool belt to to be the leader you want to be in that situation and and so that's what that's what it was is that, th- that these are skills that can be adopted and you know you really you learn to read the room and, and not in a way of manipulating the situation in, in a way of creating outcomes in a situation where we keep up conversation and we keep up dialogue and people are empowered to be their authentic self and we're creating culture of belonging that that's kind of the the point of the book and 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 so I want it to be applicable to everyone but the most critical part is it's it's something that we can all we can start today from exactly where we are because we are inherently leaders and these are practices that we only get better at when we implement them in our lives mm. I I love everything that you just said there. And it's, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to figure out if, uh, you know, if we're, we're, we're separated at birth or something like that. Because, right? uh, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what I love to hear. That's one of the most rewarding things about, uh, about doing this, this show is talking to people who are out there, uh, who are doing it and, and have come to the same conclusions and feel the same way about stuff. And, you know, it's not the classic, uh, confirmation bias. I'm sure that's a little bit of play there, but it's, when you have people from such vastly different backgrounds and different experiences and all that, and they all end up coming to the same conclusion, there's probably some truth to what they come to, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, there's something there and some of it. And I think that's, and that just perfectly explains how we bring empathy into any of these conversations we have, right? We have somebody that we, and this could be anything from the uncle that you had at Thanksgiving dinner to the coworker that you seem like you always butt heads with, like when we can have those conversations and, and, and build up this trust based on this, this commonality and then kind of explore maybe where we see things differently. It was just always a, a learning opportunity. Like there's going to be things from your personal experience. You know, we know that we're, we relate on this idea of responsible leadership and how important that is and, and to never underestimate the impact that we have as leaders and to use those, you know, use those powers for good, I guess, for for lack of a better word. But but then I feel like now if you and I did see things differently, 
I wouldn't ever say that as a challenge, but an opportunity for me to learn, right? From right. from somebody that got to this point, this common point that we have by a very different route than I did, but but we exist with this commonality. And so then how do we not make connection from there? I always think of it as like a tree, right? When we we're all rooted in this similar trunk. And and when we go out into the branches, sure, we've had different experiences to get there, but what brings us together is the trunk. So when we start to to build relationship, we don't build it out at the at the things that we see so differently. We build it out at the the things that we're so so common about. And that could be a mutual love from a sports team. It could, you know, there's all these very basic things that aren't controversial that we can find commonality around it. And that's where we build relationship. And and then once we have relationship, that's when we can really start to grow and 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 value diversity, right? That we don't want to create these diverse environments um, and value people in spite of their diversity, but because of it, because it only enriches, enriches our, our knowledge and our scope more. Oh, again, I love it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I like to quote when I'm doing more DNI centric work is, uh, you know, if you talk to geneticists, uh, if you take the two most different people on the face of the planet and look at their DNA, there's still a 99.9% match. Right. We, we have that much in common. And, and you know, that, that piece that you just said there is, is a hundred percent it. Like nine times out of 10, when I go into a new organization, the person that most people have an issue with ends up becoming my best friend. Sure. Uh, <laughs> because you know, what I found out is, is that's exactly it, right? Is nobody has taken the time to find common ground with that person. And I love that you said, you know, it could be something as, as, you know, a sports team, like uh, one guy, our, our common ground was we, we both liked the, uh, the the History Channel show Vikings. And so we Great. started talking about Vikings. And then it just led from there. And people are like, you're the first person who's ever had a conversation with them for, for more than a few minutes. I'm like, well, why? They've got right. a lot of great stuff to share, right? Uh, right. So, yeah. So, you know, and, and let's let's kind of, you know, I, I like to work through some of the, the, the book uh, to get people to, to – realize where they need to go buy a copy. And I'm telling you folks, you need a copy of this book. Um, but you, you started there with, with, we've already talked about empathy a little bit here, but what I love about it is how you kind of explain it as understanding someone else's why, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of folks out there. Uh, you know, Simon Sinek has, has made a whole kind of cottage industry on start with why, but what I like about this is, is you're talking about someone else's why. So, you know, why is it so important for us to really, other than some of the things we've already talked about, uh, why is it so important to take the time to understand somebody else's why? Well, I think that just goes directly to to your idea of responsible leadership is, and we've all, any of us that have played on, I mean, for me, it goes to back to being coached on teams, but, you know, wh- whatever leadership role you've been in, you know when everybody's been treated exactly the same, right? Like everybody, there's there's one, and, and maybe this is in in the context of the military, this exists. So I would love your, your insight on, on how this differentiates a little bit. But I know the most successful teams I've been on, the coach knows how to motivate individual players. I was somebody that was motivated very well by being yelled at. I mean, by, by uh, I guess, very stern, very strict, coaching. Like I didn't want to be coddled. I wanted to be held responsible, 
right? And then I had teammates that needed, I guess coddle gives it a negative connotation, but but didn't respond that well to being yelled at, right? Like you were going to get less of them if they responded, if if they were coached in that way, right? So the best, the best leaders don't make everybody fit their mold. They allow each individual to thrive and their job is to get the best out of them. So if I know what, mo- so back to a work context, if I know what motivates Susie and that is her most important goal outside of work is making sure she's there when her kids get off school, say, how, what can I do to support that? That's beyond anything. She will take a call at 6 a.m., but by 310, she wants to be off. Of course, she can make it work if she doesn't, but th- that's what she wants. If that's her, ex- if that's her ex- inter- external motivator, then how, what do I do to support that? Right. But if I don't know her, why, what, what motivates her, right? Like if I don't know that, if I don't get to know her well enough to know why that's the case, and that could go back as far as, you know, she's a single mom or her spouse is not home when that, when that happens or, you know, deeper, deeper reasons. Like, I don't know why that's important to Susie, but as long as I, it doesn't, I just need to know that that's important to her. And then I can support her in the best way possible. Right. And, and, and so I think, but then that, you know, I, then I go to, you know, Thomas and he has a, a, a very different motivating factor, right? His is, um, I don't know, accelerating through the organization. He wants to be in a leadership role by a certain point or whatever that might be, or he wants to, you know, finish his degree. So he needs flexibility around this. Like, how do I as a leader get to know what makes my, my team tick? And then what can I do to individualize to get the best out of each of them so we can create the, the, the most cohesive overall operating environment. Because when people are seen like that, then they can bring their whole self. Then one of them says, hey, it's my day to be the classroom dad, or I have graduation for my, you know, whatever, whatever things are happening outside of work, like then they can say why they don't, they don't completely shut out their external life. We need to know what, what motivates our people. And, and so to me, that's, and I don't have to have that experience to know what that's like. I don't need to care, you know, if somebody's caring for an elder parent, I don't need to have done that. I don't, I, I don't need to understand, I just need to understand it, right? I don't need to have lived it to right. understand it. And, and I don't need to change my perspective. And, and that, you know, came from um, Lieutenant Colonel Cartwright, who, who wrote this great essay on, you know, empathy not being a soft skill. And primarily, like, you just need to understand. You don't need to agree with. You just need to understand. That's what empathy is. And, and to me, then if that's the bar, you can understand anyone. Right. You can, there's not anybody you can't understand. And then that is that leveling factor that you said of, of really being able to, to connect and taking the time to connect. And, and then that's when people are, are really feel like you hear them that, you know, your example earlier, that guy probably didn't feel like he belonged on a team because nobody really cared. I think a lot of times when we get in that like DEI belonging space, we, we can be really exclusive, right? Like if you don't see, it's not like, if we want to truly be inclusive, we've got to be inclusive of everybody. And that's people that don't see the world the same way we do. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and you're spot on, you know, I mean, you mentioned Lieutenant Colonel uh, Cartwright there, but you know, you can go back, um, you know, 
I, I always like to go back all the way to uh, Sun Tzu, uh, you know, 25, 2600 years ago. But you can go back 300 years ago to uh, Karl von Clausewitz, uh, his book On War. And in there, he talks about exactly what you were just talking about is, is it's important to know what motivates your people. If, uh, if they're motivated by, uh, you know, by rewards, make sure you have a steady supply of ribbons and, and uh, medals available. If they're, uh, if they're motivated by responsibility, make sure you have tasks to assign them. If they're motivated by notoriety, make sure that you write uh, great performance reviews for them. And, and, you know, and I don't believe he meant this in a negative way, but being able to use that to your advantage to get the best performance out of out of folks, right, is uh, a, a, that, that level of getting to know them. And then kind of on the flip side of what you just said here at the end, uh, kind of more modern, uh, is Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. Uh, he wrote a great book in the mid '90s called "On Killing," and uh, you know some of his work has been a little distorted lately. And uh, the the psychology behind killing, some folks have tried to just use it to justify some horrible acts. But the meat of what he said in "On Killing" was when he set out to answer the question, "What can cause one human being to kill another human being?" The answer was simply you had to stop seeing that person as a human being. Absolutely. And, and, and that was where a lot of these, you know, going back to, to your, your talk and, and about, you know, so gay, that's where a lot of these pejoratives come from is, is your psychological efforts to try to distance you from that person and see them as less than. And on the surface, you know, in the military, on the surface, you do that. Maybe it doesn't have that big of an impact like obviously, but you do that enough and you start seeing people as, you know, I'm not going to use them on here in polite company, but some of these pejoratives that, that we have for our enemies. And by the way, they have them for us as well. For sure. You're not killing a human being, you're killing insert pejorative. And, mm-hmm. and so this understanding piece and this empathy and understanding the why and who that person is, it's extremely valuable because it keeps us grounded. It keeps us connected. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love it. And and it is the same in the military. And that's the one thing I really wish if I could get Hollywood to fix is their depiction <laughs> of military leadership is, is, is that iron fisted, cold hearted type of leadership. There's a lot of love and empathy and respect in military leadership. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there, there has to be, you can't go through, you can't, you can't willingly go through and, and trust in the way that, that those guys do. And, and to know that the the bonds that are created in, in those life and death environments, like you, it is completely natural, even outside of a military context, like our, our brain in, in a very um, uh, instinctual way, we sort us and them, right? Danger, yeah. not danger. The things that are like us are inherently not dangerous the things that are different from us are dangerous they are a threat right like that that is unconscious bias that just that's how we operate but but we have the ability to reason and 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 make those distinctions but when you're in a crisis survival situation that is a survival skill of of separating those things out and you just have to and when you, you know you can like you said and i think it was so critical to say like of course they of course the other side has pejoratives for us. They have to They're If you, if you can look at it in a separate way, like they're no less human than we are. And we acknowledge that. So they have to be able to make that separation in the same way we do. Like they're psychologically going through the same things that we are. They're not, 
they're not born in this way. They're brought up in this culture to allow them to do what they need to do to survive, right? And so, so I think I think it's just so it's so critical to to see that we go back to that humanity to find that commonality. But at the same time, like they, they say that you're, you know, you're not responsible for your first thought. That's that kind of like instinctual separation of us and them, but you are responsible for your second thought and your first action, right? So, so how does that cascade in your brain? You see something as other, but then what do you do, right? It's like, it's what you do after that, that makes you the leader, that makes you the, the person you know, that, that you adapt to the certain environment, right? Like, and, and how are we conscious and creating even the smallest space of time to, to insert rational thought in those cascading connections that happen, you know, almost instantaneously in our brain. And when we have something like, how do you then go from that, that military context where, where that is, is the case and, and that is what you're, what you learn as a means of survival to then re-enter civilian society where that's not the case. But how do you unlearn those things that you've learned? Yep, exactly. And that, you know, uh, kind of my soapbox thing, that's, that's where we fail so much in modern society. And again, going back to Grossman, he makes a a great uh, point there when you talk about uh, like PTSD rates and things like that. We saw them in World War One, World War Two, but kind of for different reasons. There was really the battlefield trauma. But for the most part, and, and this goes back to kind of what we're talking about here, for the most part, troops were able to talk and, and get through that on the long boat ride back. They were able to talk to their <laughs> peers and share stories. It wasn't really until kind of somewhat in Korea, but more so in Vietnam, where we were taking people from these environments uh, one day and the next day they're supposed to be in quote normal everyday society and they didn't have a chance to process that and, and I think that's the key factor there right is having these conversations talking to one another with empathy responsibility uh, all of these these pillars that you have you give each other a chance to talk about it decompress and while yeah it's a traumatic experience it's less traumatic because it's shared and there's mutual understanding right Absolutely. And why you can, you know, why you can survive it while you're doing it because you have that camaraderie, but like, what would be, what's more isolating than, than physically being alone, right? You go back to your family with nobody that's been through that experience, nobody that can process it, potentially nobody that you want to share these horrors that became commonplace to you. Like you you need that camaraderie to be able to do it and then all of a sudden you're just supposed to go into mcdonald's and you hear a trade drop and that doesn't trigger you like it and i it you would just feel so alone and then obviously to to a certain extent like there's only the people that went through it can relate to you but then when we have a smaller and smaller segment of the population who's actually going and experiencing that the empathy that comes from people that aren't from military families just doesn't exist because we don't know someone we make such different decisions when when it's our brother sister cousin right that then we do when it again it becomes othering right? right it's 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 a it's a we can't relate to when we have the privilege to not make those decisions or when we don't have people around us that have made those decisions, then how do we relate to the families that are facing those challenges, right? It just becomes, we become very separate because we don't have those conversations because we don't know how, 
right? Yeah. And so then everybody feels isolated. Yeah, 100%. And it, the one thing that kills me about the veteran community and, and kind of tying it back to the other things is, you know, you mentioned that that in scenario, you know, you're in a McDonald's and a tray drops, you know, somebody inevitably, another veteran is going to be like, oh, that doesn't sound anything like a mortar shell, you know, sure. over it. But we, we don't stop to think that, well, we don't know that to that person, right? How do they process that stimuli? And it's kind of the same thing, you know, you, you talk about this a little bit in, in your TED talk, you know, we, we, we think coming out of the closet is, as you know, somebody coming out and, 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 you know, letting people know that, that they are gay or, or, you know, whatever their, their designation is, but, you know, it could be that you're bankrupt. It could be, you're going for, through a divorce, you have an illness and somebody else who's went through that is going to be, Oh yeah, I dealt with that. It's not that bad, but you didn't deal with it the way that that person dealt with it with all of their background and context. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, we just have to see each other that way. I remember I had a conversation with a kid, uh, she was a, a high school student and I was like, well, you know, I, she's like, I just can't, you know, I'm, I don't know anybody that's gay. Like I do, I just can't relate to what that's been like. And, and, you know, and I, I acknowledge that I was like, okay, but can you imagine like, what would it be like if, have you ever had something you didn't want to tell people before something you thought like you might get in trouble about whatever. And she's like, well, yeah, I, you know, I, um, got in an accident in my parents' car, you know, it was, you know, the car was still drivable, but I just didn't really want them to know. And I think then that like tells you exactly where you are as a leader. I could have said, I can't believe this kid would compare an auto accident to, you know, the hardest conversation I've ever had thinking I could possibly lose my family. Or you step into that and say, okay, you know, that feeling in the pit of your stomach and you were so scared of what they were going to say, that's essentially what it feels like, right? Like, how do we how do we find that common ground and not like what I did was harder than what you did or what you did was harder than I what I did so we can have a conversation because I can't relate. Like, let's get rid of all that stuff. Like, sure, can we unpack what that looks like and those individual challenges to you when we've built a relationship? Yeah, but we don't build a relationship by, you know, somehow saying where we fall on the challenging spectrum of that we we say yeah that pit in the stomach like i get it and this is what i was afraid of i was afraid i was never going to talk to my parents again right and like that's a real that's real to me it doesn't matter if it felt like it was real to you like my parents were were pretty welcoming i know that there's people that and but the feel the the fear was real for me there are people that have gone through that and they've never spoken to their parents again there the perception of that fear is no different it's the same fear i had a positive outcome the percentages of my outcome being positive were probably higher than I gave them credit for. But, you know, how do we start to relate on this is what it feels like to be scared. This is what it feels like to be alone. This is what it feels like to be unsure. This is what it feels like to make a mistake on a big stage, right? Like that's what we relate to each other on, not on the details of it. But then we feel safe enough to go into those details once we've established those relationships, right? Like I could never have a conversation with a, with a veteran on that on the trauma that they've had until I have a relationship with them as a person. And then we can dive into that and we trust each other to know we're not comparing. We're just bringing our stuff to the table to, to relate and connect. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, cause that's a great point. Cause you're talking about, I was thinking, you know, yeah, you know, even listen to your talk and, and tying these things together, that, that conversation as you kind of laid it out, it's, it's not, is not that entirely different than from a veteran actually kind of admitting that they need psychological help uh, because of the stigma associated with, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's, 
you, you know, you're, you're mentally weak, you're this, you're that. Well, okay, whatever, but I still have this issue and, and I, I need help or it's going to end up me being one of the 22 veterans a day that commit suicide. And, and that common ground, I, I love that. And, 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 and as a, you know, as a leader, that's one of those things that we really have to have to get much better at, especially those mistakes. Like um, one of my guests on here, he, t- he told a story uh, about one of the members of his team that was in charge of sending out payroll checks back when paper checks were still a thing. Something had messed up with the machine um, and they were sending out the checks and all the checks were bad. Nobody got paid. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and and, but it was having that conversation and she admitted to it. She's the one that, that noticed it after the fact, what had happened and was willing to take corrective action to fix it. And, you know, in the story, he says, you know, one of my colleagues said, so how quick did you fire her? He's like, <laughs> well, I didn't. And they're like, why? He says, well, look, it was a mistake. It's not something she did on purpose, but now she knows what to look out for. If I fire her and I hire somebody else, they may make that very same mistake. Keeping her on is the right thing to do because of the growth that happened from that experience. Exactly. And then as a leader, if you, again, like we don't, we don't lead in a silo. Like if somebody sees that, I mean, it wouldn't have been, if that person would have gotten fired, it wouldn't have immediately after that incident, however you frame it, however you massage it, however you write the email, people are going to know why it happened. And that doesn't create transparency in your organization. People are going to try to hide their mistakes. If they make a mistake, they're not going to own it. They're not going to learn from it. They're going to try to make sure nobody else finds out about it so they don't screw so they don't get fired too. And like, what kind of culture is that creating? Were you, as opposed to like, hey, I messed this up or you, you, you know, when people are, are proactive in that way, or especially when leaders make a mistake and own it publicly to their people and they view it as a learning opportunity, like that's where innovation and creativity comes from. Maybe it was just a clerical mistake. Maybe she was trying to do something new and better. Maybe she was trying to improve something in some way, right? Maybe she was just distracted. Regardless, like if we're not creating environments where people can try new things and not fear that a mistake equals termination, then how are we ever going to grow as an organization? We can't be innovative if we don't leave room for people to make mistakes. Like if, if you're not making mistakes, then you're as a leader, you're not pushing yourself. If you're not having awkward conversations, you're not pushing yourself. Like it, it's just like, you know, we have to break down muscle to build muscle back. If we're not willing to go to that point of, of breaking down muscle, of, of going through the practices of, of these tenants of being a better leader and hitting our breaking point and then growing from it, then we're never going to grow. We're just going to be, we're going to be stagnant. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Speaking of growing again, listeners, uh, I highly encourage you to go out and pick up a copy of step up how to live with courage and become an everyday leader by our guest today, Ash Beckham. Uh, Ash, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think we could probably talk for another uh, three or four hours here. Uh, Absolutely. Everybody charge charge your devices. Earl and I are going to just keep going. <laughs> there you go. I wish, I wish, uh, and out of respect for, for uh, your time and, and uh, everything, um, you know, I'm just kind of curious here before we wrap up. Do you have, is there anything in the conversation that we didn't get a chance to get to that you really want to leave listeners with? 
You know, I would just say, you know, back to what we talked about before, you know, that that everybody needs to acknowledge first and foremost to themselves that they are a leader right now. And, and as a leader and as a responsible leader, one of our responsibilities is to grow. So I would say, you know, the, the way that we make that happen is to do one thing today that makes you feel uncomfortable, right? Like something that makes you feel awkward, write that email, send that, you know, have that conversation, submit that proposal, whatever it is that that's the thing that you've been holding back that that makes you a little uncomfortable. Not doesn't even have to be high stakes, but just something different. We can't expect to change without challenging ourselves. So what's one little thing that you can do today to, to kind of flex that flex that leadership muscle and and allow it to grow? Uh, and, and that would be the only thing is that, it, you know, you don't read enough books or listen to enough podcasts, even though this one is great, like it comes to putting it in action and really putting yourself out there. And so we have to, we have to do that. So that would be my only thing is, is do, do one thing that, that every day, but start with today that, that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. That feeling in the pit of your stomach, um, shouldn't be the thing that holds you back. That's the thing that, that determines that you're doing the right thing. Oh, that was that was beautiful. I love that. And that's whenever you hear somebody saying get comfortable being uncomfortable, that's exactly what we're talking about. It's exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. So, Ash, uh, folks want to you know find out more about you, uh, what you do, uh, maybe get a copy of your book. Uh, what's a good place for them to uh, to be able to connect with you and, and uh, find those things out? Sure, absolutely. Um, so you can go to my website, which is ashbeckham.com. Uh, and then I'm on all the social media platforms, um, Facebook, Twitter, um, LinkedIn is all Ash Beckham. Instagram is the Ash Beckham. And you can find the book uh, on Amazon, on bookshop.org if you want to uh, support independent bookstores, especially this time of year. Um, and I, it's a direct link to me. So feel free to shoot me an email and I, I love to continue continue the conversation with folks. So I would love anybody that reached out. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. And, you know, yeah, we'll have to, uh, you know, who knows, maybe if uh, the, the timing aligns, we'll have you back on here uh, so we can continue this conversation because this was uh, just just a treat. I really, I really appreciate you. I really value your time. I love what you're doing. And thank you very much for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Absolutely, Earl. I, I love being part of it and, and love the conversations you're having and, and, and what you're doing. And I'd be thrilled to come back anytime. Thanks so much. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid. 
Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid